This morning's reading is from Revelation 17, 4 through 9. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations. On the fly. And the 24 elders and the, living, and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, there we go. Great to be with you all. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have one quick announcement. Last Wednesday, we wrapped up our nine-week Financial Peace University class, which was really great. Um, Jason uh, over here led the class with Frank and Stephanie. They did a great job. We learned lots about how to honor God with our finances, how to think about debt and savings, and how to live radically generous. That's what this last week was all about. A couple of stats that were shared on the last class, which you might find interesting. There was about 50 or so, give or take, on a week. But we were able to, in that group, pay off 50000 in non-mortgage debt. That's exciting. Yeah. We were able to save collectively after we rethought how savings we are to prioritize. We were able to save 161000 And if you know Dave Ramsey courses at all, you know he loves cutting up credit cards. So we cut up 12 credit cards. So that's fine. (laughs) And Jason was good to remind us each time, you can't just cut up the card. You know, you got to close the account and all that stuff. So, all right. It's great to be with you all this morning. In our text today, I hope you'll see with me a glimpse of the heavenly reality. A picture of the way the world really is. Through imagery and symbols, we're going to see some wild things today that point us to one thing, one reality, that Jesus is victorious, that he's glorious, and that he will make all things right one day. He will come and make all things right. There's a book I used to read my kids that would say, God will one day make all the sad things come untrue. And that's our text today. That's, this is conquest. The conquering lamb is the once and for all answer to the question of suffering in the world. The suffering you have experienced, the suffering you've seen, and even, yes, the suffering you may have caused others. The Lord says, vengeance for those things is mine. Vengeance and justice, they all belong to this conquering lamb. Would you pray with me as we begin? Lord, I'm so thankful for your word. It's such a beautiful 
gift. And every time I get the privilege of studying it at this level of depth and reading and, and ruminating on it, praying over it, it's just such a blessing. And there's so much to cover here, so much that we could say that we won't have time for. I, I'm just, I hope, Lord, and I pray that your people would walk away with an understanding of your character, Jesus, your goodness, even in the midst of something as heavy as the conquest of Babylon, all these themes we're going to see. Lord, would you show us a little bit of your beauty, Jesus, and let that be something that's attractive to us in the way that we want more. Lord, let us taste and see that you're good today. The phrase that's been on my heart and mind the last couple weeks is, that our services would just be a fragrance of you, Jesus. So, Lord, would you give us that, that hint, that nod that leaves us wanting more and more of you today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've got a lot of reading to do today. We're going to actually read all of 17 together, all of 18 together, and then 10 verses of chapter 19. So right away you might go, wait, why? Why in the world are we reading that much? Well, remember, we're going through this series quickly to keep the big picture in mind. We literally can't get bogged down in the details because we have so much to cover here. But that's actually helpful for our goal of keeping the big picture. We won't be able to analyze every symbol. And actually, that can be a recipe that leads us towards overanalyzing and overreading into things that are not meant to be read that way. Remember, we've been saying all along, the book of Revelation is not to be read like a code to be deciphered. Now, it seems like you can either do the book of Revelation in 12 weeks, like we've done, and keep it as a flyover, or you could do it for 12 years, maybe, and then then you can dig into every single image and figure out what it means, and maybe we'll do that starting January, but no promises. All that to say, we're not going to have time to zoom in very much here, we're going to keep We're going to keep the big picture in mind of God's conquest of sin and systems of power that are opposed to him. Now, whenever we hear terms like Babylon and the beast, we are to picture any system or structure that is opposed to God, any form of government that's opposed to God. And because we are sinners, every form in one degree or another is connected to this Babylon image. Now, one last thing. We've got some PG-13 terms here today. So when people say things got biblical, they mean passages like what we're about to read. That's what they mean. We've got mentions of beasts and a great prostitute. Your Bible might even say the great whore of Babylon is going to be like that. So hang in there through those and keep in mind Frank's words from a couple weeks ago. That the sexual immorality, the whoring being talked about here, is referring more to the spiritual element than just the physical Not to say that the physical doesn't matter, but every commentator I read on this agrees that the greater reality here is the spiritual one. When it talks about these things, the prostitution, it's a reference to people, especially the people of God, called the bride of Christ, being spiritually intertwined with other systems of power and idols and not being true to God. Does that make sense? So already you've heard that W word more than you probably thought you would today. If it's anybody's first time, we don't normally say that word very much. 
And you're like, great, this is the week that I picked to invite my friend from work. Great. So instead of skimming or summarizing, I really felt led to read all of the text today. And there's a couple reasons for that. One of them is, as you'll see in Revelation 17, there's this crazy image given, and then at the last half of 17, an angel interprets it. So I thought, okay, well, let's just read that because it kind of interprets itself as we go. So all that to say, hang in there with me, read along, work hard to stay with me. It's going to take some effort on our part, but let's read all of Revelation 17 together. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman. So notice the wilderness here. We're going to come back to this. But notice that the the angel carries him into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. The way she's described here being adorned outwardly in these beautiful things to look like a queen is important. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And here goes the angel to interpret. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. So briefly here, this language of was and is not and is about to rise This is a direct opposite of God, who is described as God who was and is and is to come, right? So here we see the beast that was and is not, a direct contrast here to God. Verse 8 continues, And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. When he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Look at verse 14. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. 
For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So the woman, the beast, the hills, the horns are all getting you to vibrantly picture the systems of power in the world that are opposed to God. Now, yes, you could zoom in on those and and notice how he's referencing Rome, but the bigger picture is not Rome. It's all time. It's any system. That's what he's getting you to think about. Now, any system that's opposed to God is, what he says, seeking the destruction of the followers of Jesus, but they themselves will be destroyed. But verse 14, this beautiful little aside here, those with the conquering lamb are not destroyed. They are called and chosen and faithful. If nothing else, Revelation is a wake-up call for the world, asking the question, whose side are you on? And so to the person here sitting on the fence, unsure of this Jesus thing, maybe, maybe not quite done with the uh, living in the world, I, I want to live like this a little bit longer and then I'll come to Jesus. I would ask you, where is the middle ground in this story? In what we just read, where's that middle ground? Where's the fence? And to those sleepy Christians here, myself included at times, where is the neutral ground for those who still need a little more time to make up their minds? There isn't any. There isn't any. You are with the lamb or you're with the beast. You are conquered by the lamb or surrendered to him. And we'll see this over and over in this book. We've seen this already. Remember earlier in Revelation, Jesus says to the lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. Think about how he says, I would rather you be cold to me than lukewarm. There's no fence. There's no middle ground. You're hot or you're cold. So the point is, don't wait to come to Jesus. Verse 3 mentions being brought into a wilderness to see this news. Now, this is an important thing. I wish I had more time, but the wilderness or desert is a motif in Scripture. It's a theme that's referred back to over and over. And if you did a a full Bible study on that theme of desert, there's so many amazing things. But for, for here, I'll just say, for John, the wilderness is the place of revelation. Now think about that. I wonder if John would have been able to see this image of Babylon, a glimpse of the way the world really operates, without first finding himself in the desert. The wilderness is often the place of revelation. And church, I just would say, tuck that away for your next wilderness season. Remember that God might be trying to show you something that you wouldn't be able to see otherwise. And when things start to feel like a desert, don't give up. Hang in there. Trust God. Remember, he promised, I'm with you in the valley. I'm with you in the desert. You're not alone. So chapter 17 is where John sees from the desert the rise of Babylon. In chapter 18, we see her downfall, her destruction. Now, we're about to see a few parenthetical asides in chapter 18. Many think of these as songs. And so we're going to see some songs of lament and sorrow as Babylon is destroyed. We'll see kings and merchants and sailors. I I like to imagine that the sailors are pirates. 
Um, we see them all singing songs of sorrow as Babylon is destroyed, and we see followers of the Lamb singing because of the destruction, singing with joy. The Lamb, who will no longer allow Babylon to exist, their time is done. So let's read chapter 18 together. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Verse 6, pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment. And here's the first king's song. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen. He starts listing out all the different industries in the city that are destroyed. Purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood. Those must be the car air fresheners. All kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed, here's the merchant's song, has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. Here come the pirates, all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. 
For in a single hour she's been laid waste. Look how verse 20 starts to shift here. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. The light of a lamp will shine in you no more. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth." So every industry is affected by this overthrow. Now, interestingly, this millstone that's referenced, representing Babylon, that's thrown into the sea, one commentator calculated this would have been about a 4,500-pound millstone thrown into the sea to symbolize how Babylon is overthrown. Now, the angel doesn't seem to struggle, does he? It doesn't say, and the angel had really strong pecs and chucked it into the sea. It just seems effortless, right? It's a reminder that this overthrow of Babylon for God is not a difficult thing. This is the future that awaits any and every nation, systems of power, industry that are opposed to God, and it's easily done for God. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed with how could God fix this? Remember that it's an easy thing for God. Verse 20 says, rejoice. I think it's interesting. God's given judgment, he says, for us against them. This judgment is for the saints with Christ. I think this this chapter gives us a reference point to call back when we see injustice in the world. It's temporary. It won't last. It can't last. It will be made right. God will do it. Now, if you notice, like me, how often wealth and luxurious living were mentioned, it seems worth paying attention to. Right? Verse 3 said the luxurious living of Babylon. Verse 9, the kings who were living in luxury with Babylon. Verse 15, the merchants who gained wealth from Babylon. Verse 19, the ships who grew rich. The question is, are these verses in the Bible tying wealth and luxurious living to being part of Babylon? That's a good question, right? I think the answer is yes and no. If you look at verse 7, this tells you part of it. Babylon is described as glorifying herself and living in luxury. So her luxury serves to glorify herself. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I'm no widow and mourning, M-O-U-R, mourning I will never see. Her wealth and luxury serve to glorify herself. And this is a great temptation of wealth. And it's easy to fall into. It's deceptively easy. That's why the Bible has a lot to say about wealth. It doesn't mark wealth or even luxury as a bad thing. In some parts of the world, running water is luxury, right? So I'm not up here to say that the only way to be holy is to live in a studio apartment and take the bus everywhere. That's not how scripture talks about wealth. When the Bible talks about wealth, it marks it as a dangerous thing. 
So meaning we need to be careful how we handle it, how we think about it. Why? Because it can lead the heart astray. That's why. It's what it does to the heart. Matthew 19, famously, Jesus says, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And perhaps the clearest Jesus spoke on wealth was in Matthew 6. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys. Thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be. That's what Jesus is after, your heart. Verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. And church, you are so generous. I know full well as a pastor, I've seen many times where needs are presented to you and you respond with generosity and faithfulness. I'm so thankful to God for you. It's clear to me where your treasure is, where your heart is. And this passage in Revelation is simply a call to reflect. Maybe it's time, once again, to take stock of your heart. Of your heart. Ask God to search you and know you like David in Psalm 139 and see, God, search my heart. Is there any wicked way in me? Are there ways, big or small, where our hearts have begun to trust a little too much in money? As if that's where our comfort and security comes from, ultimately. Think about this. In today's world, if you're a person of means, you can solve a lot of your problems in life by using money and wealth, right? If that makes you a little less dependent in prayer to God, to be the one who provides according to your needs, according to his riches and glory? Is there a part of our hearts that resonated even a little bit with, with the woman on the beast's words in verse 7? Nothing bad can happen to me. I'll never see mourning. I'll never see grief. Nothing bad can happen to me. I think it's just a reminder to ask the God of your heart these things and fight against the allure of false comfort, false security, guarding your hearts against devotion to one at the cost of devotion to God. Build up treasures in heaven. It's all to be used for God's glory, not our own. So we've seen the rise and fall of Babylon, the songs of sorrow for those against the Lamb who are helpless to stop this destruction. And in chapter 19, 1 through 10, we have this beautiful text, and partially it's beautiful because 17 and 18 are so intense that when we get to chapter 19, we start to see like a little glimmer of hope in the midst of all this destruction. I think of this scene like a little camera whip pan away from the destruction and towards what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a beautiful text. It's part of, it's, it's a party of joyous songs in the presence of those mourning in Babylon. It's a striking contrast. We see songs of lament and then camera pans over. We see this amazing dinner, this bride and groom dinner. Now, as a framework for this, I kept thinking of Psalm 23. You know, the famous, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? Instead of the chaos waters, he leads me beside still waters where he's in control. Look at verses four through six of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley, you could say desert, the wilderness, of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So with that framework in mind, let's read this great feast, the marriage supper of the conquering lamb. Let's read 19, 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And we have this really fun aside in verse 10. As the angel says, these are the true words of God, John interprets that as, oh, that must be God talking. Look at verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, whoa, 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 whoa. You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I think it's interesting that verse 4 in chapter 19 gives new color. If you remember when we were studying Revelation 4 and 5, that was the last time I was up here, we had a first glimpse into this throne room. And do you remember talking about the 24 elders and the beasts and they sing to God? Here it's like we have a new element of color to what they're worshiping God for. They're actually worshiping him for his judgment of sin, for the destruction of Babylon, which is just an interesting new layer to this. I haven't heard too many songs singing about the judgment of God over sin. That's not really a, a theme I've heard. I told Caleb in the first service that maybe the next Arcadia worship album ought to be titled The Judgment of God Over Sin. I think that'd be a good idea. Of course, one of our elders afterwards, he's like, actually, I know a song, and he sent me one that's just all about praising God for his judgment. Verse 8 Look at this contrast we have between the woman who's described as wearing purple and red and jewels and gold, all this outer adornment. Look at the, the adornment of the bride. It's just the pure white of inner righteousness versus the outer appearance of beauty from the woman on the, on the dragon, but full of inner filth. So this woman on the, on the beast was arrayed in purple, representing royalty, in red, representing power and blood. It's, of course, the same color as the beast. And gold, it's supposed to get you to go, wow, 
she must be powerful. She must be this or that. And here we see the bride of Christ in simple white, made ready for marriage. Church, we will either be on the side of mourning or praise at the end. There's no fence. God is making all things new. And as Frank quoted last week, John Demeter, a pastor at Redemption Peoria, said, God makes all things right before he makes all things new. That's our text today, God making all things right. And we might struggle with that. We might struggle to read of this utter and complete destruction of Babylon and all the systems of, of uh, the merchants built throughout that. But if you notice, church, the gospel, the grace of Jesus, is still trickled all throughout this passage, all of what we read. There are warnings, there's calls to praise, but I just want to remind us of two in particular that stand out. Back in 17, verse 14, there was this beautiful little aside that said, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords, king of kings. Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Remember that the lamb of God will ultimately win. He will conquer. And in this text, you and I don't do that much here. We sing, we watch, but it's the lamb that conquers. And of course, Revelation 18.4, this beautiful little aside, I think the previous verses were an angel, but I think verse 4 seems to be more of Jesus' words. He says in verse 4 of 18, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Think about that. Even as God brings about the destruction of Babylon, there's an invitation one more time to redeem those that would come with him. I think this is a stunning revelation of the character and love of God for you and me. Come out of her, my people. Come to Jesus, church. If it's your first time doing that or your hundredth time doing that, come to Jesus. And do it not just out of fear to avoid the destruction of Babylon. If there's one side or another, don't come to Jesus just out of that fear. Come follow the Lamb, not just as a get-out-of-hell free card, but come to Jesus because he's beautiful of the character that you know and you've seen. He's good, he's righteous, and yes, he's just and holy. Come to him because he's all those things. This marriage supper of the Lamb is, is you're invited to that as well. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this beautiful image of this marriage supper that's happening in the midst of the destruction and chaos, the songs of lament. Lord, this is a hard text. This is hard. Help us to see, Lord, the beauty of the text. Help us to see the little glimpses of your goodness and character, even in the midst of something as difficult as destruction. Lord, help us um, to, with all the heavenly hosts, Help us to praise you in our hearts for your judgment of sin. That's hard to do. I think in our culture today, that's, that's especially hard to understand. But you are a just and holy God and you cannot exist next to or with sin 
or wrong. Lord, you, your presence purifies. That's what it does. So, Lord, as hard as that is, help us to trust you. And I pray, God, for everyone in here that we would not wait to come to you again. Lord, this week I can think of a few times that my heart wanted to wander towards Babylon again. The allure of it pulled me to one degree or another. Lord, I'm sure that's true of every Christian in here and and for those who are not Christians in here. The allure of the world can be hard to see. And many times you bring us through a desert of uh, a season of a desert so that we can see truly. Lord, help us not despise those desert seasons, but embrace them. Be faithful through them, especially Christians in the room. Help us to be faithful through those times. Lord, the life of a Christian is one of repentance and faith, and we have a moment here to respond in repentance to see the ways that we have aligned ourselves with Babylon and to hear your words, come out of her, my people. Lord, help us to do that. Spirit, would you expose those things in us? And when we see them, help us to repent, to acknowledge it and say, Lord, I've done this again. I want to turn away from that and back to you. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of communion where we can take the bread and the juice or the wine and remember that your body was broken for that. Your blood was shed for our sin. You did it to give us a way to come out of Babylon and come back into you. Lord, help us to be your faithful and true bride here on earth, even as we're surrounded by sin and the effects of sin. Lord, help us to live into this greater reality through moments like these. Lord, we confess together we do not love sin and Babylon. We love you, so help us to return back to you. Holy Spirit, do that work in us. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.